On this program some weeks back, we mentioned an interesting event that was taking place. A team of swimmers was going to relay their way from Sacramento down to San Francisco, and it uh, was for a good cause. We were intrigued and wanted to know more, and we've tracked down someone who can now inform us about it. That would be Jeff Russell, who's a member of the sponsoring organizations, the Dolphin Club and the San Francisco Baykeepers. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Jeff. Thank you. Now, you, you organized this thing, or how'd, how'd this go? I did. Um, it was actually a, kind of a meeting of the minds. Uh, one, I'm, I'm a member of a swimming club in San Francisco called the Dolphin Club, and it's a, a group of people that swim in the bay year-round um, without wetsuits. <laughs> and it's been around for years and years. Uh, it's, it's kind of a you know, San Francisco institution. And I, I've been doing that for a couple of years now. And thought it was uh, it, it tied in really nicely with the Gold Baykeeper, which is uh, another San Francisco-based organization that uh, is really the watchdog, pollution watchdog of the San Francisco Bay and the Greater Delta. So, um, so one day I was, I was sitting sitting down at the club after a swim, talking to a fellow swimmer, and he mentioned that he he had been toying with the idea of swimming up up the Sacramento from San Francisco to Sacramento, kind of like a, a reverse Huck Finn. Uh, type thing, and and we got to talking and, and thought, hey, what a what a great chance this would be to to raise money and, vi- and visibility for Baykeeper if we could pull in a, a group and uh, turn this into a, a fundraiser. So, so that's kind of how it started. How did you raise funds for that? People just committed to supporting, like people doing run, on runs and things like that, or yeah, we we had a we had a bunch of different ways. I uh, we had people sponsor swimmers and and uh, give them a certain amount per mile. Um, it was a it was a 100 mile swim total, um, so so we did it that way. We had uh, we had an angel donor uh, commit to matching gifts. Um, uh, I went into the world of web design and built a website, and we we pulled people in that way. Uh, we had a, a big party at the end of the swim, and and uh, so so there are a bunch of different ways we we tried to raise, raise funds. Was an article in the Sacramento Bee by Ed Fletcher that talked about you guys had some interesting pictures and the like. Uh, mentioned the fact that water quality was a concern, and and how 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 worried were you about some of those spots down that in that hundred mile trip where where the water quality may be a little dubious? Oh, it's it's always on your mind. Uh, you know, there's there's certain sections of the river where you look on shore and there's uh, sewage outfalls and. <laughs> Ominous looking uh, smokestacks, and, and and you know you just you, you can't you can't let yourself really fall prey to the, the guessing game. Um, uh, fortunately, I I kind of did a little bit of homework with Baykeeper in advance of the swim to really try to dig in and, and find out how how the water was up there. And and generally during the dry season, it's it's fine. Um, when it becomes bad is, is during the rains when all the runoff. Uh, seeps into the river, um, so water. So water quality wasn't a, a huge concern for most of the swimmers, and, and actually, you know, everyone everyone was pretty healthy uh, during the swim. I mean, there's there's some seasickness, <laughs> but uh, nothing nothing caused by the anything in the water. How long did it take your team to do that hundred miles? I've done it in a boat. It's an all day affair with uh, with a motor. Oh yeah, well we jumped on Friday uh, afternoon and. Swam about 40, a little over 40 hours straight through. Uh, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, we pulled into uh, San Francisco around 4 a.m. on or 5 a.m. on uh, Sunday morning. Just a little over 40 hours. 
Well, I do have to ask just, Jeff, because I, I, every year I get uh, a tide uh, table for the San Francisco Bay, and, and anyone who's been out in the bay or swum out there or kayaked out there knows the currents are can be hellacious. Did you have to time it uh, so that you could get past some of that? We, yeah, we, we did. We did our best, and, and somehow we ended up facing the worst, the <laughs> biggest tides of the month. <laughs> no, I don't know how that happened, but we just thought, all right, well, here's another, yet another obstacle. Um, them to make this swim even more challenging, like we needed something else. Um, so we, we, we faced uh, a six-foot tide on, I guess that was on Saturday morning. And we, we didn't really feel the effect of the tide until we were further down the river, I'd say closer to, uh, well, well, past, well past the river. We were in the delta at that point. And um, I think we were, gosh, we had, I remember we had Pittsburgh off our bow. Yeah. And, and uh, it was, you know, three or four in the morning, and we hit the peak of the high tide, and we were stuck in place. I mean, the swimmer wasn't moving forward at all. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the currents can outstrip any swimmer's ability in, in the worst-case scenario. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and these aren't normal swimmers either. These, the swimmers are all, you know, chan- English Channel swimmers, and these guys are strong. So for them to have a challenge, you know, it was, it was tough. So there were nights where I'd, I'd be watching, you know, first night I'd be watching the landmark on the side, just hoping that it would move an inch. <laughs> oh, but, wow. you know, a lot of the times just sitting and waiting. Well, you had quite a studly team. The, the, the article mentioned, I think, that five of your people had been, were English Channel vets? Yeah, I think that's right. Five out of the seven were wow. English Channel. And then, uh, and then uh, the sixth guy uh, swam something like 360 miles over, over one winter. So he's no slouch either. Um, really strong swimmers. Uh, uh, I mean, and being, it being their company was just a was was spectacular to, to watch their form in the water. Uh, it was it was really amazing. Did you meet your target goal in fundraising? We exceeded our target goal. Oh, good. Um, we originally didn't really even have a goal. We thought you know maybe we raise a uh, thousand or two thousand dollars that'd be great. But we ended up actually uh, raising over eight thousand um, dollars. And hope to do more next year. Well, outstanding. Uh, so it was a wildly successful event, and um, I think we were able to spread our message uh, to a lot of people and, and get them thinking about um, other ways to use the water and, and re- you know, have another reason to keep it clean. Well, I know people are going to want to go to your website, which I guess is, is it relayforthebay.org, or where should they go? That's right. Uh, our website for the event was relayforthebay.org, and um, that has information about the swim and there's a really neat map with uh, the course that we took and pictures and and then some of the different environmental issues um that's a place they can go to get more information about last year's swim and and hopefully we'll be updating that once we start planning next year's um and then of course uh, baykeeper.org is another resource with uh, information about the swim and and uh, work that they do when you reminded me, we, we promised our listeners sometimes we're going we're gonna to get to a topic. Now, there's been about a six-week delay since I promised that we'd talk about uh, your, your swim here. But uh, some years ago, we were talking about the restoration of oysters throughout San Francisco Bay, and I guess that's been quite a success story, and, and you must know a little bit about that, too. It sounds like uh, something is progress being made. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, don't, I don't know the science of that, but I, I do know that that's, uh, you know, one of the big one of the goals of, of baykeepers is to get the bay back in a place where, where there are things like oysters and fish that you can pull from the bay and, and eat and not have to worry about getting sick the next day. Um, the oyster restoration project has been 
has been hugely successful uh, at different spots along the along the bay. And um, that's actually something else you can look at on our website. Um, I think there was a bit of risk with the latest oil spill, um, but uh, but hopefully they'll, they'll make it through unscathed. Um, uh, I think they've also seen increases in, in other marine life populations as well. I know that we uh, swimmers encounter uh, sea lions pretty frequently these days, yeah. um, which is which is nice uh, to see that there's so many sea lions in the water, but also uh, a little bit unnerving when, <laughs> when you come face to face with a 500 pound uh, animal. And uh, we actually encountered one of those along the swim. Uh, we have this great photo. I think it's just north of, uh, just just east of Venetia. Uh-huh. Uh, one of our one of our swimmers screamed, and we turned around, and and someone got on a film. A seal practically jumped over. <laughs> it was twice the size that she was. So that was our that was our welcome home to the bay. Yeah. Ceremony. <laughs> well, they they come up sometimes as far as the confluence of the American up here in, in Sacramento. So it's uh, that 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 is a thrill. I know. But uh, but Jeff, I I I, um, I hope that you will, will will talk before you do this next year. I'd like to be able to cover your event as it takes place. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. Um, we're not sure what the route's going to be next year. It could be Sacramento, and um, it could be uh, someone else mentioned the Fairlands. So <laughs> it's in the it's in the planning stages, but I'm sure it'll be exciting, and, and we'd love to talk with you. Well, they yeah they, uh, they get you guys on board. They just let water out of Freant Dam. There's, they're putting water back on the San Joaquin River. Maybe you want to try to swim from Fresno next year. That'd really be a treat. Hey, if, there, if there's a few inches of water, I think we could do it. <laughs> well, uh, Jeff Russell, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, one thing we've tried to cover on this program is a, a lot is the whole issue of the peripheral canal and the delta water, which is definitely impinges water quality. And... Um, We'll be talking about it in the future, and perhaps you want to come back and, and, and uh, sound off on that issue as well. Absolutely. Well, we'd be glad to have you. <laughs> All right. Thank, thanks. Appreciate it, Doc. All right, Jeff. All right, let's, uh, let's stay on the topic of uh, the environment and cleaning it up. Article in New Scientist magazine, October 24th issue, about how if you take some tire-lulled gas fields and pump microbes down into them with a little bit of fertilizer, uh, they start making natural gas, and you're able to get a lot of that out of the uh, depleted or nearly depleted oil field. Actually, I think what they're referring to were some coal fields in the article, but um, interesting idea. Some initial studies showed they were able to get uh, enough extra methane out uh, of one field in Wyoming to heat 16,000 homes for a year. Obviously, this is not carbon-neutral technology. And it got me thinking about those maps of the world at night, which showed these gigantic lit-up areas of uh, the world's oil fields as they basically flare off the natural gas. So I started looking on the Internet. Went to a Google Earth blog and found that, uh, that indeed, this huge waste of energy of all these uh, oil fields around the world is indeed clearly visible on Google Earth. One blogger wrote, Recently I happened upon a thread of posts at the Google Earth community entitled, The Largest Waste of Energy in History. I was initially skeptical, and still am not convinced, yet it is that it, that it is the largest. I was initially skeptical and still not convinced that it's the largest. However, this is a serious issue. A byproduct of getting oil out of the ground is often a huge amount of toxic natural gases. These gases can be harmful to the oil mining process. 
So the manufacturers burn the gases off to get rid of them in a process known as gas flares. These are usually giant chimneys with scorching flames shooting many meters in the sky and burning toxic gas residues into our atmosphere. It turns out that billions of cubic meters of natural gas have been, bur- have been burned continuously around the world for decades simply because the oil manufacturers find it easier to just get the oil to make their money. The real travesty is that while trying to get to the oil, the oil industry is burning away giant amounts of energy and polluting the atmosphere on a gigantic scale. And this, of course, is a fuel that could be used to provide energy instead of just, you know, using it up. Article explains how you can actually use Google Earth to locate these flares at night and then, you know, view them in the daytime and spot the facilities. Unbelievable. I want to tell you that if you want to look at one of those uh, maps of the Earth at night, it is astonishing the amount of energy that's going up in smoke. I mean, it's, it's enough. I mean, it's, it's more light than is being emitted by the world's major cities, uh, it, it, possibly, possibly many times as much. And the reason is, you know, considering the low cost of, say, Persian Gulf oil, it's just not cost-effective to the oil companies, even though if you basically took that natural gas and uh, bottled it up, you'd probably have uh, a more eco-friendly um, source of energy than the oil itself. But what are you going to do? It's hard to break our codependency with oil, but uh, as we talk about in this program, there are ways to do it, and we're going to keep, uh, keep publicizing them. And that same issue of uh, New Scientist had an interesting article titled, How green is your pet? In fact, when you start looking at what goes into pet food, uh, you come up with some pretty alarming numbers about uh, the environmental footprint of uh, the family dog and cat. In fact, here's the alarming part. When you actually do the math on this and sort of evaluate how much uh, space on Earth it takes to provide the food for a dog as opposed to, say, a car, guess what? According to the article, the Toyota Land Cruiser's eco-footprint is about 0.4 hectares, which is less than half that of a medium-sized dog. The initial researcher came from Robert and Brenda Vale, who are architects who specialize in sustainable living down in New Zealand. The magazine uh, ran this past some, uh, some people in Stockholm for a second opinion, and their figures tallied almost exactly. Article quoted John Barrett at the, uh, actually it's the Stockholm Environmental Institute in York in the UK. I got that wrong. Uh, but apparently the people in York said uh, owning a dog really is quite an extravagance, mainly because of the carbon footprint of meat. But, uh, you know, in case I'm not alarming you enough, they did some calculations for a variety of pets, and the Vales discovered that cats have an eco-footprint slightly less than that of a Volkswagen Golf. And apparently when you consider the cumulative environmental impact of our furry friends, uh, the U.S., which tops the list for both cat and dog ownership in absolute terms, home to 76 million felines felines and 61 million canines, uh, well, if you tally up what it takes to feed these animals, well... It takes the equivalent of one and a half times the area of New Zealand. If you want to feed the pooches living in the world's top 10 dog-owning countries, you need another five New Zealands. 
Beth, the article goes, goes on to talk about uh, the impact of cats and dogs on wildlife, and it's pretty horrific. And, of course, uh, you know, the, the animal feces strewn out upon the countryside, well, that gets into our lakes and streams when it rains. And, boy, does this discourage me from swimming in the Delta anytime soon. But seriously, when I was in Monterey this summer, they noted there'd been a fall-off in the... Uh, in the sea otter population, and some uh, bright spark discovered that, uh, well, they appear to be dying from a brain disease caused by Toxoplasma gondii, a parasite found in cat feces. Winds up in rivers and estuaries and eventually in Monterey Bay, thanks to cat owners who flush their cat litter down the toilet, or to people who have outdoor cats who defecate outside. Anyway, it sounds like if you want to be cognizant of your eco-footprint, uh, Better take into account your uh, furry friends. Let's do two uh, science items here about lava caves. You know, lava caves are something we just just don't talk enough about on Radio Parallax. Although I do want to note when I was in New Zealand, the recently mentioned New Zealand uh, a couple of decades ago, I had quite a wonderful experience in a lava cave with a local lass, but that's a story that will never be told. At least not on Radio Parallax. But anyway, uh, uh, space scientists have been looking at some high-resolution photos of both the Moon and Mars, and guess what? They found some tantalizing evidence of underground caves. On the case of Mars, they appear to be dozens of miles long and hundreds of feet wide. They look like uh, long grooves next to extinct volcanoes and almost certainly are some form of lava tube, which means that when man ever does get to Mars, uh, they may... uh, it may kind of reflect uh, a revolution on Earth, going through a, sta- a stage of being cavemen and women. Physicist Glenn Cushing told LiveScience.com that uh, caves can protect human explorers from a range of dangerous conditions that exist on Mars's surface, including cosmic radiation, dust storms, and extreme temperatures. If the caves turn out to be habitable, future space explorers would not have to transport substantial shelters or build them on site. So... <laughs> Yay for the cavemen of Mars. And uh, the moon had a phase where there was some hot lava on the surface, and uh, uh, apparently photos taken by Japan's Kaguya spacecraft show what looked to be an intact uh, lava tube with a skylight, a hole punched in the top. Looks like a meteorite uh, hit the top of the tube and just blew a hole right through it, a nice little punched-out black circle. And, of course, the scientists noted the obvious there. A base in such a tube would be shielded from radiation, meteoroids, and temperature fluctuations. So, cavemen on the moon. And, no, we're not, we're, we're not to proposing the next uh, movie vehicle for Pauly Shore. But uh, we think that stuff's pretty cool. Anyway, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 